The following is a fourth-hand production. Welcome back, everybody, to good old sad times. For those of you who have not been here before, welcome for the first time. Uh, just to let you know what the show is, uh, my name's Kevin. And each week I bring on a guest, uh, myself and that guest, we kind of have a, a free-form discussion over about an hour. We discuss some times in their life uh, where they uh, had a hard time, where they were sad, anxious, upset, how they acted, how their family acted, um, how, how uh, people around them acted, and how they dealt with that. Because we obviously all go through this shit, and the goal here is um, to be a little more open, all of us, uh, on this show so that um, people can listen to the show and feel maybe a little bit more less alone more or less alone good job kevin now i'm sad so uh and also in the studio where i am i i just keep staring at this sticker of cigarettes that say fuck on them and that's all that's running through my head right now is is fuck cigarettes <laughs> so got that going anyway that's sad times so um welcome back and today we have a very special guest I've known Ali for two and a half years. Does that sound about right? Yeah. Yeah, two and a half years. Okay. And we worked together at a couple jobs. Where are you from? From here in Chicago. Do you ever get on the wrong blue line? You know, I've I've gotten on the wrong red line. You've gotten on the wrong red line? Yeah. Yeah. Drunk. Yeah. Oh, I'm sober. Yeah. I got on the oh. wrong blue line. Oh. Yeah. You're from right here in Chicago. You still live in the city? Still live in the city. Awesome. What neighborhood do you live in? Hyde Park. Oh, I love Hyde. I've only been there like once, maybe. No, once. And I really dug it. Nice. A lot of bookstores. A lot of bookstores, a lot of restaurants. Um, a lot of sane presidents. Sane presidents. The security is ridiculous around Obama's house. Like literally the street is blocked off and you have to literally cross the street in order to walk on that actual block. So it's very, it's very interesting. Wow. Uh, how long have you lived in Hyde Park? I actually just moved there this July. Oh, wow. Yeah. Right on. Yeah. Awesome. So new new member there. You grew up in Chicago. Uh, you have siblings, right? I have siblings, yes. How many do you have? So total, with including myself, five. No, six. Six? Yes, six. I have to think about that for yeah. a second. Yeah. That's a pretty big family. Where do you fall on that line? Are you the oldest, youngest, middle... So it's a little complex. Okay. So with my parents um, combined, I'm the oldest. Mm-hmm. Um, from my mother's side, I'm the second oldest. With my dad and his previous relationships, I'm the middle child. Okay, so got it's it. it's very complex. Oh, that is. That is. <laughs> yeah. Here's the story. Mm-hmm. Um, so your mom and your dad now, um, you said you're the second of their children c- together? Um, with them together, I'm the oldest. You're the oldest. So Excuse I'm the me. Oldest. Okay. Were you close with both your parents growing up, or more so my mom than my dad? Okay. Yeah. Did your mom look to you to kind of help with everybody else around the house, like being the oldest, kind of be that that leader, kind of watch over the other your siblings and stuff? Yeah, like growing up, it was more so. I know there was a lot that was being taken on. The relationship was kind of challenging between my parents you saw the good times and then you also saw a lot of the bad times and Mm -hmm. sometimes it was kind of me having to be that middle of being the settled in the middle so trying to bring that happiness while you know my sisters were young and we were all growing up trying to 
I guess, cover some of that, but it was kind of challenging to do so. So I think that brought me and my mom closer, considering just some of the things that my dad was dealing with um, when he was still alive. So just more so personal issues, alcoholism, um, in some cases, drugs, things before I was even born that my mother knew about. So it was a lot like just to to be in the middle of that and to try to try to balance it all while growing up and being a child, but also being exposed to those types of things very young and to, to different types of arguments and fights. It was it was pretty challenging. But I think um, with my mom trying to being that oldest child and, and trying to kind of having to grow up mm-hmm. in, in some instances brought us closer together and just kind of helped with that relationship. Me and my dad kind of had a lot of challenges yeah. growing up, um, even as a child, as a teenager, and in some cases as an adult. So, man, that, that's a lot yeah. right there. So you said that you kind of played the middle person, like, and you were trying to make everybody happy. Is that kind of what you were saying? Like, Yeah, I felt like the only way to kind of make things alleviated per se was to to try to make light of things try to make you know laughter out of things Mm -hmm. try to joke from time to time um i wasn't really which most people know now that i have like this really big personality but actually Uh when i was growing up i didn't have that no you weren't you weren't loud and threatening to take your wig off not threatening to take my wig off flipping with people no none of that oh man that because that's scary as shit man it's very scary yeah put it stop just put it back where it was. I'm trying. Okay. I'm adjusting. All right. Thank you. Uh, so, and you said that you're, you, so your mom knew about stuff with you. How long were they together before you were born? So my parents, um, from my understanding, were together about maybe three years. Before you were born? Yeah, because my dad was originally from Selma. So my mom was born Selma, in Selma, Alabama. Selma, Alabama. How did they meet? So my dad, um, basically, he moved to Chicago a few years back. Mm-hmm. Um, basically, he had two sisters that had moved up here prior to him. They wanted a brother to come up here just to have, like, that male figure. So my dad ended up moving to Chicago. And he met one of his sisters had a, a boyfriend, which was my Uncle T. Um, we used to call him. He passed several years, a few years back before my dad did. And he was actually out riding with um, my Uncle T and they were out. And my mom had like this, I forgot the name of the car, but it was like a really old school green car. Gremlin? That, not, I, I'm I just mean, kidding. I'm right. I'm like Gremlin, maybe. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but it was this really old school, really cool car. And my mom was driving it and my dad like was driving with my Uncle T and he saw my mom. And basically from what my mom said, like he started screaming at her at the window. <laughs> What was he screaming at her? <laughs> Just screaming, trying to get her attention. Like, hey, you know, I don't know. You know how that 70s lingo go. Like, oh, you look smooth and sexy and all that stuff. It was just a bunch of stuff that I think is disgusting. Like, I don't even want to <laughs> think about it. Well, but... then we won't go down. I was going <laughs> to right? ask how your mom responded, but yeah. did she just rip tire and get out of there? She kind of, she tried to, but then he actually, my dad actually told my uncle to like speed up. So he kept up with my mom in order to talk to her. And so he ended up like getting her attention, getting her phone number. They ended up pulling over, getting the phone number. Uh-huh. And then from there they started dating. You know, it's because that gremlin could not go very fast that we're sitting here today. Exactly. It was yeah. just kind of treading. And at that time was your dad that you know of struggling with uh the alcohol and drugs at that time i would imagine so my dad was very a very outgoing person um he liked to go out he liked to party and a lot of those times alcohol was involved 
and, you know, some minor drugs and things like that. The only thing that I remember just from conversation was Happy Sticks. Happy Sticks. Yeah, which I believe was a mix of marijuana and laced with either cocaine or something of that nature. Uh So I know those conversations had happened and those were a little bit challenging because when I was born and younger, I heard some of those stories. I've seen kind of the the dynamic with that. Like my dad, for example, um, would come in the house sometimes really, really like stuttering, slurring his words, clearly not knowing that he's in the house or like... Like not where knowing where he was. Yeah. Okay, yeah. And just kind of like crumbling on the floor or he just stumbles into bed. And so I was exposed to that really young. And so my mom tried her best to really like protect her, myself from that and my sister's. Um, but it's sometimes a challenge, especially when you have other people that see it, they're around it. They, they, you, you can tell as a child, like most kids can see, you can tell when your parents are happy and you can tell when oh, yeah. there's something mm-hmm. wrong. Right. So it's, those it's were very really apparent. Yeah. And very we, apparent. We look to our parents, right? I mean, obviously we, uh, that's who we watch 95% of our life. Exactly. The first couple of years, we're just staring at our parents and that's why we have the same mannerisms. That's why we do all this stuff, you know? So, um, it, it must be jarring to, to see that, that type of thing. And you had said that you guys weren't really close at all. Not really. No. Um, do you think up. this had to do with it? The what you saw or was it just a a number of different factors? I think it was a more so a number of different factors. I think my dad, there was a lot of root things with that. I know my dad never met his father. Um, so his father passed when he was still in the womb. So my grandmother was like three months pregnant with my dad. He's the, he was the youngest. Yeah. So I think that, I think not having maybe necessarily the right role models around, I think having his own root issues that he had to deal with as an individual played a part in that. Um, My dad had two kids prior. And of course, both of those relationships were failed relationships. Mm -hmm. And, you know, at one point, I'd even admit it like, hey, you know, I was just having fun, you know, at those times. And I think with my mom, he tried to settle down and kind of find that balance, but still had like those root demons that he had to deal with. You said you were close with your mom. How did you communicate with your dad? Communication was very limited. Um, It was pretty much when things needed to get done in the house. He was obviously still like the male figure. He was the dad. You know, my mom. Disciplinarian? Exactly. Tried to keep that relationship um, just to keep the family together. So interactions was really, you know, do as I say, not as I do. Um, It was really more so like we had some of those intimate moments where I would play with my dad, but they were very limited. Um. A lot of those times, unfortunately, it was either he was drunk or he would come in the house, really wasn't, you know, very active. Or when he was active, it wasn't a positive father figure active. It was more so you could tell he'd been drinking. You can smell it. You can see it, how he communicates, slurring his words. So what would you feel when you saw that? What were the, what were the things you would think? I would think confusion. I would think confusion. I would think sadness. I would think at one point sometimes like, is it us that's causing this problem? You know, why do you feel the need to come in or to interact with your kids in that type of way? And it may it kind of hurt me a lot, too, because even when I'm experiencing this and exposing to it, I can look at my mom and I can tell she was just fed up. There was days where she just was just fucking fed up about it. Like, these are your kids. These are 
we made these children together and, you know, you're either coming in because you spent all of your money and pretty much your entire paycheck on alcohol, partying, some cases maybe with other women, getting drugged up and then coming home. And it's like we've had barely nothing to eat in the house. And it's just like, well, what the fuck? Now my mom has to clean up all the the mess and go out and just try to make it happen. So there were there was a lot of emotions that were there. It was it was anger a lot of the time. It was sadness. It was confusion. And it's like emotions that I feel like a child shouldn't have to be exposed to at such a young age. And we're talking like eight, nine, ten years old. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, what did your dad do? So my dad grew up, um, growing up, he was a welder. And so he used to weld. Um, he worked in a factory um, here in Chicago. Mm-hmm. And um, on the west side of Chicago, it was an old factory. It's been shut down for like 30 years. And so he welded as a for living. Um, and then after a while, when he um, lost that job, um, he did more like some custodial work um, for a long time after that. And then essentially down the road, started working for a school. Okay. Um, so. You had said that uh, your dad was from Selma mm-hmm. and he came up to Chicago uh, and then your parents, what, you know, did they reach a breaking point? Yes. So probably too many times to count. <laughs> so I, I definitely saw a lot of dynamic with just the arguing and the fighting and, you know, it went from verbal fighting to physical abuse. And there was so many different times where, my mom would kick my dad out the house. He would leave. Um, there was signs of infidelity. And then he would end up, you know, she caught my dad at one point, like in our basement when I was younger with infidelity. And so this happened for a very long time where there was just the constant back and forth to the point where it was just like, you need to leave. And then I think, and this is just my thought process and talking to my mom now as an adult, her mindset was more so, I have to keep my family together. Like, I don't want to be the statistic of a single mom with three kids and I have to be out here trying to do it by myself. And I don't want my kids to feel like they only have half of a family. And I think obviously she did love my dad. Like she loved my dad deeply. Um, You know, there were some good times where my dad, you know, was sober and would help with the house or, you know, would take her out or just really make it as a family unit. And I think that love is just what made her decide each one of those times to get back together, even more so when we were a little bit older. Mm -hmm. um, We lived in a shelter um, on the west side of Chicago. And in order for him to move in, they had to um, get legally married. And so in um, November of 96, no, 98, I'm sorry, um, they ended up getting legally married because she wanted that, always wanted that just family bond. My mom went through a lot in her personal life as well, just dealing with her family, losing her parents very young, her mom at nine, her dad at 18. So my mom already had a lot of separate um, separation, didn't really have a great relationship with her family. And so she kind of just separated herself from that and wanted to keep that bond for us. So I think that's what really, even though it was toxic and let's, let's call it for what it is, even though it was a toxic relationship, she wanted to still somehow paint that picture or believe that my dad would get better. 
and oh, and be better. Your mom, that that's amazing. That's just so much to um, try to hold together, mm-hmm. especially with the past that you were just talking about and what, what it sounds like, the, the really challenging stuff she dealt with growing up and the fact that she tried so hard to keep you guys together and for you and your sisters and, you know, for your dad. I, I think that's just beyond commendable. So I, I, I just want to say that. But at some point, he left, right? Yeah. And did, what, what, where did he go? So in 2006, so I was living, I had dated a guy really young. I was 17 when I moved out of the house officially. 17, okay. I was 17. I thought I was grown. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, so around, so that was 2004, but 2006. So I came back to Chicago from Florida in 2006, and that was the same year that my dad actually left and went back to Alabama. So my mom just had it. There was a big fight. Um, One of my sisters got involved, had to like literally got into a physical altercation with my dad because my parents were about to get, were getting into another physical fight. The story was told to me that he was going to take the the phone and like throw it at my mom. They got into an altercation. He threw the phone at my mom. My other sister got really angry about it. And she actually physically started fighting my dad. And it got to a point with my mom where she's just like, I can't do this anymore. Like I've been doing this for almost 20 years and yeah. I can't do this anymore. And so it got to that, that point where the drinking still was an issue. The communication was still an issue. You weren't being, my dad wasn't being that spouse or that husband that she needed him to be. And in 2006, like, cut it quits my dad like decided to just say fuck it and he ended up um packing his stuff and he moved back to alabama in my um my grandmother's home did they get a divorce so they never got divorced and they so, didn't get divorced he just moved he just moved never got divorced never got did legal they still separation. talk no no they barely talked barely barely okay yeah so and um you said alcohol was still an issue at this point, too. Yes. Um, what did he like to drink? My dad was really big on whiskey, um, gin, Seagram's gin. And that's uh, old so bumpy crazy. face? Old grumpy face. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Seagram's gin. And that's so sad because I can think about that all the way back till I was like probably six or seven. Seagram's gin. I can remember looking in the refrigerator and there's some days where there was food. There was some days where there wasn't food um, or there was just a box of baking soda. But there was always some Seagram's gin. There was always a pint of Seagram's gin right on the side of the refrigerator. And I knew that was my dad's. My mom wasn't a smoker, wasn't a drinker. So I wouldn't I knew for a fact. But I know my dad either either he was having whiskey or he had that bottle of Seagram's gin right on the side of the refrigerator. Even if there was no food. Even if there was no food. So how angry were you at your dad growing up? I was or pretty, if at all. I was pretty angry, pretty resentful. Um, it had gotten to a point at one time. Um, my frustration had gotten so huge that when we were living in the shelter, in a transitional shelter um, on the west side of Chicago, I was 11 or 12 at the time. My dad, um, my mom let him move back in. And I had, was up to my wits end with it. I just was at my boiling point. I'm like, as a kid, I'm like, I don't give a fuck if this is my dad. I don't care if he's the adult figure. Like, 
this bullshit keeps happening and you keep letting him in. And so at that point, I like snapped. Like he came um, home with this cake and it was around my birthday. So it was around February and he came home with this cake. And of course, my mom's like, you know, your dad's back and he comes in with this cake. And I was so pissed off as an 11, 12 year old. I literally like just looked at him and I literally like picked up. Now, this is like a, a nice size cake. So I'm like showing you like it was yeah. a pretty nice size. That's, I literally, let's see. That's about two, three, two and a half feet, maybe. Yeah, it yeah. was a big cake. Yeah. I literally grabbed it and I threw it on the floor. Whoa. Yeah. Because I to me, it was just like you're just trying to 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 sweeten things over when there's clearly an issue. And instead of trying to fix the issue or be a better person, you want to sweeten the deal. And you guys want to come together as my parents and say, oh, it's going to be okay. And we're going to come back together. And I literally did not give a fuck at that point. I threw that cake. And you were 11 or 12? You, I think I'm I was, sorry. I didn't mean for you to clarify, but you were around that age. Yeah, right? around okay. that age. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. And I literally just like walked out the house. And after that, and went to my friend's house around the corner. I didn't even want to have anything to do with my dad at the moment. Like my mom tried to stop me and my dad tried to say something, but I literally like ignored him. I didn't want anything from him. I I just wanted a better father. I wanted a a better father figure. I wanted the the man that's supposed to protect me as a young lady growing up in a world that is unfortunately out to attack me in various ways. And that's what I needed growing up. And that's what I didn't have. And I think at that point I had just had it. And I was tired of my mom making excuses for that behavior and that toxic behavior and dealing with it herself. And so I became very resentful between the time of like 11 and and 14 years old. It was not a great relationship. Me and my dad got into a physical fight. Like he tried to, um, disciplined me with the belt for something I don't even really remember but the next thing I know he tried to hit me and I punched him in the face what happened when you punched him we got into a physical altercation okay. like we started getting fighting my mom literally had to come in between us I literally punched him in the face and I was just I just had it I was very resentful I was tired of what we went through as kids and especially as girls right like I didn't want to grow up um quick I didn't want to have to deal with a lot of responsibility at a young age. I just wanted to be a kid. It was already hard enough living, you know, in an underprivileged neighborhood. You're you're dealing with a lot of challenges there growing up as a child. You're finding, trying to find your identity. And then to have this be on top of it, it's one thing to go out in the world and deal with that, but then you have to come home and you have to deal with that. And then you have your mother making the excuses now, as an adult, I, I understand, but I still feel like that, again, it was a toxic situation, but I was just fed up. And when we got into that physical fight, I had just had it with him. I did not, me and my father did not speak for probably two weeks after that. We were just walking the house. In the same house? In the same house. And this, you said you were 14 at that time? At the time that that happened, I was about, I was 12. So I you was 12. 12 at that wow. time. Yeah. So do you think that obviously all of this anger, frustration, resentment led to you leaving at 17 and and feeling that you felt like, a, as you said, you felt you were grown up? I felt that I was grown up and I felt like that the guy that I was dealing with at the time painted this picture of, oh, you're mature. I'll take care of you. 
you don't have to deal with this type of stuff. You don't have to deal with the struggles that your mother's going through. You don't have to deal with the poverty situation. He's like a knight. Somewhat, exactly. Taking me to Florida, somewhere that I've never been, somewhere fun and exotic in Miami, stuff that I'd never been exposed to. And so in my mind, oh, that's great. Like, Uh I'm getting away from these problems. I'm getting away from it. I don't have to deal with it. Like, this is my escape out. So some people try to find escapes. For some people, that's drugs. For some people, that's alcohol. For some people, that's moving away. For me, it was moving away with somebody that I thought back in the day was going to be that person or, oh, this is the guy I'm going to marry and we're going to have babies and relationship. And that totally twisted. But that was my thought process Mm -hmm. at the time. And did you and you felt saved? I felt saved. And. How long was it before, if ever, that you were able to forgive your dad? That's a great question. Thank you. (laughs) So why I have a show. Indeed. What really made me forgive my dad, not really necessarily that time. Um, It was around the time that I was probably around 23. And I think um, I was in a better place. I was with my now current husband um, at the time. We had been married for like three, four years at the time. Um, We had our own struggles, but Mm -hmm. it was it was at a better place at that time. And. I think what it was for me was I couldn't continue to deal with having this this battle of I got to save my dad. I got to tell him what he's doing is wrong. I have to tell him what he needs to do. I felt like at that point in my life that I was married. I was living my own life. I had my own place. I was in a better state from the prior relationship. Like mm-hmm. I was in a better state. This was somebody I grew up with. This is someone who knew me as a teenager. And I just didn't want that guilt. I didn't want that mindset anymore. So I wrote my dad a letter. And at that time, he was still, you know, he was in Alabama. And I just wrote him a letter. I didn't want to talk to him on the phone. Mm -hmm. I just wrote him this letter. And I wrote this letter more so for me than for him. And it was just detail stating how I felt how he treated our mom over the years how he treated me over the years my sisters his other children who felt animosity as well and I just told him that you know I love you and that I care for you and you are my dad and I always love you but I have to release this like you weren't the best father you were not a great husband you were not the best dad And you allowed other people to come first before your family. And that, I think, was a really big moment for me. But it was the it was a reality. It was here's people who his family, you got married to my mom. You had kids with my mother. But yet you still put your family first. You put your friends first. You put other people first before your actual family, the people that you committed to, the woman that you committed to the children that you had with her. Mm -hmm. And it always felt like we were second best. And so when I wrote that letter, I definitely was in a lot of tears, but I felt a sense of relief Mm -hmm. that I was taking all of those burdens that I was feeling for a long time and just telling him, this is how I felt. And my dad probably called me like a week later and had questions and was just like, I don't understand this. Or it was more combative than it was, Accepting. Acceptance, mm-hmm. exactly, and understanding. 
And I think for him, that was just his way. My dad wasn't an emotional guy. So for him to kind of get emotional, it was kind of like, eh, he didn't want to do that. Like, it was more so, well, your mom did this and that. And really, all I just told him was, Dad, look, you're a human being. I can't force you to do anything. Um, This is how I feel. At least you know it. You can take the information and do whatever you wish with it. If you choose to take it and understand, that's fine. If you don't, that's fine as well. I just rather you understand where I'm coming from than to have this continue to ruin my life or I become a horrible person or be a bad person because of the things that were detrimental to me. Wow, that's amazing. That's uh, a brave thing to do. So we're going to take a little break, I think, at that point. But we'll be back in a minute. We'll talk a little more. Yeah, we'll be back with Ali in just a little bit. Welcome back in uh, to Sad Times. Uh, just a reminder, we're here with Ali. Hi, Ali. Hi, Kevin. How was your break? My break was wonderful. Good. So when we last left off with you, you were 23. Um, you'd put together kind of all your thoughts and feelings uh, about your dad. And, and you said a really couple of interesting things that I wanted to call out. You said, you know, I, I can't basically, and I'm paraphrasing, but I didn't want to let this... I didn't want to become a bad person or an angry person. And, you know, kind of you got it out and you were crying when you wrote the letter. Just it sounded like a really good release. And then the fact that when your dad called you about a week later, you said he was combative. And then you seemed to handle it very well saying, look, this is the information that I have. This is what I've given you. Do with yeah. it what you will. So it's like in my hearing of that, it's like you got all that out and then you were able to not react uh, necessarily by throwing a cake on the ground or whatever, or, or being angry, you were just like able to say, "This is this is what I feel," yeah. and that that's it. And that's uh, I don't care who you are or, or um, where you are in life. That's damn near next to impossible to do. So um, good for you for being honest with your dad. So uh, you're 23 at the time you wrote the letter. Yes, I'm going to fast forward a little bit. Um, you had mentioned early on in the episode that you lost your dad. Mm-hmm. Um, how old were you when you lost your dad? He just passed this year in July, July 17th. Okay. How'd you lose him? June 22nd. Um, I was actually in Arizona and I was transitioning jobs at that time, but it was the last week that I was at my prior employer and my dad got sick. It was the week after father's day. Um, June 22nd, fast forwarding to that Saturday, he was diagnosed with stage four lung cancer. Like, did did you guys know of anything like he was sick or anything like that? No one knew. The only indication something was wrong um, was when we saw him, we video chatted him, my sisters and I, on Father's Day, and his face was swollen. And my sister noticed it, and I thought my dad was probably just tired from work or whatever. And we were chatting him and talking to him. We had sent him a nice gift. Mm-hmm. And we noticed that his face was really swollen. His eyes were puffy and he just kind of was coughing. And so my sister's like, yeah, your face looks really, really fat. And so a couple days after that, um, my dad had breathing issues and he started having some breathing issues and he couldn't breathe a lot. And he was stating he need, he may need to go to the doctor. And so um, essentially that Wednesday 
no, that Thursday, um, my dad drove himself to the um, local hospital um, clinic at Selma. Mm-hmm. And they did like emergency x-ray. He said he couldn't breathe. And they found a mass on his right lung. Um, at first they said they not to worry too much about it, but at the same time they needed to get more testing. Selma, if if you guys out there know, is a very small town in Alabama. There's a lot of history there, um, but it's a very small town. And they had to fly my dad from Selma to Birmingham because that's where all like the the larger hospitals were. Mm-hmm. So that Saturday, um, well, that Friday was my last day. While I'm sitting there, people are like sad to see me go. I'm sitting there in the back of my mind like you guys have no fucking clue what's happening to me or it's happened this week. Mm-hmm. Um, that Saturday, he um, we got a call at 7 a.m. And I was at my house in, in Arizona and... Um, basically, they had confirmed that the mass on his right lung was stage four lung cancer. He basically didn't want to talk. My aunt told us information, his sister, but we got in contact with our dad after a while and he didn't want to speak. And he was just like he put his niece on the phone that was there at the time. And he just they told us and he signed a paper saying that he didn't want any surgery. He didn't want chemo. He just wanted to deal with it. This was six days after you talked to him uh, on Father's Day. Mm-hmm. And at six days after that, he found out he had stage, excuse me, stage four lung cancer. And he had decided that he did not want to medically fight it. Nope. He didn't want to. My dad never believed in surgery. Um, he didn't want to go through any hard chemo. So they gave him the paperwork when he actually got um, admitted on thir- that Thursday. Mm-hmm. And it basically was just stating like, hey, you know, do you give us permission if we do find something wrong? Do you give us permission to do surgery, immediate surgery? Um, he did sign a paper saying that if he um, was to pass out or anything like that to give resuscitation. But as far as like any type of surgery or any chemo, he actually signed and declined. And you said, sorry, his sister or your niece told you that? Um, his sister um, called us and told us, but the details came from um, our, our cousin. What was your reaction? I cried on the floor. I was, I think over the years, my dad and I, again, weren't super close. But when we talked, it was human to human. I saw my dad as a, a human being and forgiving him of his father wrongdoings and just seeing him as a man and as a person, even through his demons. I I just cried. I just cried. Like all there was on the phone was crying. And my mom, of course, not crying because she has to be the strong one. She was in so much fucking disbelief. Um, the, the only thing that I could do was like, I just, I started getting anxiety and all I'm thinking is, I'm by myself. I'm in Arizona. I just left a job. I don't have an apartment back in Chicago because I gave up an apartment in Chicago. I have to go home. I don't have a place to stay. And I got to get to Alabama. So I was scheduled to come home the 28th of June. Mm -hmm. And I moved my flight up to that following Monday. Mm -hmm. Um, I packed the shit that I brought with me. And I ended my um, Airbnb down there earlier. Um, I came home that Monday, um, filled out like tons of applications for an apartment. 
Um, at that time, too, mind you, me and my husband had been separated for two years. And so we separated. And then over the time of that year, we were of, well, this year we were talking about getting back together. Mm -hmm. So we had just got back together. I called him and was like, hey, my dad has stage four lung cancer. I don't know what else to do. And he's just like, what the fuck? Are you serious? And so he's like, well, you need to get the fuck up here. Let me get some money. Let me get some stuff sent to you so you can get up here. So he paid for, obviously, to get the tickets to come back. Um, so I moved my flight to pay the fee, came back that Monday, filled out some applications for an apartment, um, was getting ready to start another job. And like two weeks after that, that same day that I came back, I flew in that Monday. I was in a vehicle with my husband and my mother at one o'clock in the morning. I got back about 11 o'clock that Monday, mm -hmm. one o'clock a.m. that Monday slash Tuesday. Mm -hmm. I was in a car driving 10 hours um, to Alabama. Down to Selma. Yep. And this is now 1 a.m. So nine days after the uh, video call. I, the reason I keep bringing up the timeline is I'm just gobsmacked by how fast this all happened. Yeah. And so it's, sorry, your mom, you, and your husband yeah. driving down to Selma. Yeah. So you get that. Is your dad in the still in the hospital at this point? At this point, he is still in the hospital. Um, Prior to that, that same Saturday when they announced it, um, we talked to him at about 9 a.m. About two hours later, um, they had found my dad. My dad got up and went into the shower. They found him passed out. Um, he had had a seizure and he... um was bleeding at the stomach. Um, they had put him on a tube and down his throat and he was literally um, sedated very heavily from that point forward. So when you got there, he was sedated with, with the, he was intubated with the tube. He was intubated with the tube. Um, he was heavily sedated. Um, wasn't really making any movement. Um, very minimal. My oldest sister, um, um, which was my dad's first child. Uh -huh. um, she was there. My aunt had flew down there already. Um, we got down there like Tuesday afternoon after driving 10 hours, um, got to the hospital in Birmingham and um, saw my dad laying in the hospital with a tube down his throat and just laying there. Not doing anything just laying there and they basically stated that he didn't make any kind of movements or he kind of got up and you could tell because he was heavily sedated but it wasn't until my mom and myself and my husband was there my husband Jeff and he heard our voice and he started waking up and he tried to get himself out of the sedation oh. They didn't take him out of the sedation because they said that he was like fighting them. He was like pulling, trying to pull plugs off when they did it. Mm -hmm. So this happened for a couple of days. I spent a week down there. We were down there for a week. After a couple of days, I'd, I had just gotten to the point where I was just like, I know my dad. I know he's very independent. And he didn't want to live that way with a tube down his throat. And I think that was probably the most challenging thing for me was because essentially a decision had to be made of keeping the tube down his throat or taking it off him and um, not putting it back. So 
I talked to my sisters. My sisters were still in Chicago, my younger sisters. And then um, my oldest sister and myself was there, my aunt. And, you know, I had had an argument with, um, not necessarily argument, but there was a little bit of back and forth with my aunt. um, And just because she felt like there needed to be certain decisions. Um, But she... um, they basically had told us at the time, once they removed the tube, that they couldn't put it back. The conversation kind of started because it was clear that my dad was struggling. He didn't want to have the tube down his throat. Right. You saw it in his eyes. You saw, again, not an emotional guy, but very, but you can tell in his eyes, like, I don't want this. I, he was trying to get removed. When they tried to sedate him, you could see him trying to fight. Mm-hmm. And I literally, after a couple of days of that, I went back and forth with the nurses, the doctors. I said, get this shit out of my dad now. Like, he does not want to be like this. I know for a fact he doesn't want to be like this. You see it. He's trying to fight. You would be fucking uncomfortable if you had a tube down your throat. Yeah, right. And so, essentially, um, they understood but they gave us the disclosure the next day, talked to the nurses and was like, hey, um, we just need you guys to know um, we're going to go ahead and do this. But once we do this, we cannot put it back in. So if he stops breathing and we can't resuscitate him, that's it. And, you know, my sisters were like, no, we don't want to do this. You know, it was a very hard decision, but essentially... I kind of had to step in and be honest and say, just looking at him and I was telling them on the phone, just touching his hand, looking in his eyes, seeing that he knows me, seeing that he knows who I am. He's just, he reacted to he you reacted. Too when you first came in, when exactly. you heard your voice. It wasn't, it wasn't what he wanted. And then on top of it, even if we wanted to have chemo for him, we couldn't because he already had acute kidney failure. Um, the bleeding was there, but it stopped. And then he had pneumonia. So even if we wanted to do chemo or anything, we couldn't because he wasn't even healthy enough to do it. So I told them to to take it out. And they had another medical, they had another option of sedation that was um, more um, that they could use instead of the tube. Mm -hmm. So I told them to use that. And they did. And it was probably the most relief that I felt because when they took it off and they put him on the other sedation. And when we walked in the room, he couldn't speak. He tried to talk, but because he had the tube in. um, You saw a feeling of relief in his face. That somebody stood up for him to say. I didn't want this. And like I said, I didn't know. I didn't know. There were things I knew about my dad. I didn't want to know. There's shit that I still don't know. But I knew at that moment that I did the right thing. And Mm -hmm. I knew at that moment that the right decision was made. My mom was very at peace with me doing that and and being that leader and um, just saying this was the right thing to do. 
How many more days were you down there um, after that was removed? So I was down there about another three three days until like the weekend. Was he able to talk after a little while? After a little while, he was able to talk and I was able to like feed him. So we were <laughs> we were feeding him um, essentially like a little bit of food here and there. And then, um, you know, a lot of water and like some ice chips and things of that nature. Um, then popsicles. So I remember feeding my dad a popsicle and then he started talking. He's like, we were like, you like the popsicle? Yeah. Yeah. Popsicle. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, yeah. and he's like, I want some more popsicle. And so we kept having, um, feeding him popsicle and, um, he had a little bit of food. And then my mom, um, for the remainder of the week, instead of her staying at the hotel, she spent the night and stayed in the hospital with my dad. Um, he was then from ICU transition to home hospice. Um, well, not necessarily home hospice, hospice in the hospital, but this was a hospice where if he were, if you're expected to live more than like two weeks or so, they mm-hmm. would and essentially send you home for home hospice. So they ended up moving him cause it was the, the right thing to do at that point. Um, but he wasn't well enough to to have any again any chemo so we essentially had him moved to that hospice care palliative pro palliative care is what they call it and palliative care palliative i've never care. heard that phrase. yeah it was a, a different type of like hospice care and so they moved him there and then um you know he started talking he was a little agitated but of course you know that's part of it but that's more where they just make them as comfortable as possible so if they're hurting, they give them, try to give them more, um, you know, drugs in that case to to help them mm-hmm. get what they want. But him and my mom had a really good conversation. I know my mom um, and she talks about this still all the time where he called my mom to the bed and told her to hold his hand. And that's all she did. And he she she just held his hand and he's just like, I love you. And. It was just that spoken bond between them. And we weren't in the room. My husband and I weren't in the room. But my mom talks about that. Like she knew even with all the stuff that they had went through, they ha- found some type of, of peace over the years to talk from time to time. He, She knew my dad loved her and that she was the love of his life. And that was his way of of telling her goodbye and when we left that day it was one of the hardest things to do but what was even more painful was just watching my sisters go down there the week after my sister Nellie and her husband went down there and what just broke my heart the entire the last three and a half weeks was my baby sister who was pregnant and had to endure that and had to watch my dad get strong some days, speak some days, laugh some days, but just watch him in that hospital bed knowing that she's pregnant and his grandsons not may not be able to see him. So it 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 definitely was it was a very hard it was a very hard time. But I felt peace knowing that he wanted to at least live 
as much as he can free and without tubes. He knew he had cancer. He knew he was going to die. And he was okay with that. He had made peace with that. But he didn't want to live it under the conditions of a hospital. You said he lost him on uh, July 17th, I believe you said? Yes. Um, so, what? obviously, I've not lost a parent, thankfully. Um, uh, but... Uh, what what were your thoughts? Uh, you know, just kind of. That's that that's that that's an insufficient question. Like, obviously, there's grief and there's pain. I'm sure. Did you feel a pull from him leaving you? Like, what what were you? Maybe summarize a little bit what you were going through. So, um, my dad passed away at two twenty a.m. on July seventeenth of this year. And I had fell asleep. I'd seen him the day before on video chat. He had lost like 40 to 50 pounds. And he was struggling to keep his head up. Essentially, that the day prior, the 16th, he was actually released from the hospital and was sent home. The doctor said they were surprised he was still alive. But I think it was the fact that he had left the hospital that I in in some weird way that I think brought him some type of peace. Um, he ended up at my sister's home. Um, they brought all the supplies and everything and dropped him and brought him there. Um, but he was fragile, like looked like a typical cancer patient. Forty or fifty pounds. Yeah. Over the course of a week. Like we didn't see the weight loss until like a week and a half prior to his death. And so I had fell asleep that night. I just was mentally out of it. My husband was just a really incredible support at that time. And just being there and just even conversating with my dad and before he passed and him and, and my husband and, and my dad had a conversation um, talking about just life and just talking about, you know, just enjoying one more drink. Yeah. Yeah. Just one more drink. And when he died, I had woke up, but something told me something happened. Mm-hmm. I woke up about maybe 30 minutes afterwards, and I noticed that my mom had called like four times. And I didn't even want to finish looking at the phone. I didn't even want to call her. But then I saw that my baby sister sent me a text message via Facebook Messenger. And I just opened it up and it just two words, dad passed. And all I could think about was what the fuck? Fuck cancer. I I just couldn't. I didn't know what to do. I didn't know what to say. I just turned around. I tugged at Jeff. Jeff was sleeping. I said, Jeff, He's gone. And we just got up and cried. My husband's not a crier. At all. Hmm. He cried that day. And it was just telling the family. I immediately was like, nope. At this time, I had started my new job. I had, We had gotten an apartment. And I just was like, I just want to sit here. 
And all I did for half of the morning was talk to my sisters. Um, We cried together, talked for like from like four o'clock in the morning. The first two hours just sat there with Jeff crying. About four o'clock, we got on the call, got on a messenger video chat and just was talking and crying. Um, Sent a Facebook message to everybody because there was so much support that day from just so many different people. And I just was letting people know, like, much appreciated, you know, but, you know, he passed away this morning. And I just sat there the whole day. I didn't. I didn't eat. I didn't want to go back to sleep. I didn't want to do anything for a minute. For for a moment in time, I thought about suicide. For a moment. Not so much more of, oh, I just don't want to go on, but in the aspect of saying, would my dad need me more there than anybody here would need me at that point? Just with root issues that he didn't resolve or problems that he may have not been able to get the right help with. It made me wonder, should I just go over there? And that's what my thought was that day. And for a few days afterwards, and I didn't really tell anybody that or, or share that with anybody I just kind of, I didn't even share it with my husband, didn't share it with Jeff at all. I just kind of sat there and thought like, wow, this really happened. Maybe there's some peace there that I need to go see with him over there. Maybe it's more needed because now he's transitioned over and I know everybody's faith is different, but you know, I, I do believe that there's an afterlife and I'm like, maybe he needs me more there for healing. And at that moment, I was just like, it, it was just too much. I, I had lost a lot of people this year. I My best friend of almost 20 years, her mother died from cancer <laughs> earlier this year in January. That was one funeral. Um, coworker of ours, you know, Kevin, that we that law passed away um, on right. the day that the 28th. Yeah, I was supposed to come back, passed away the day after our former coworker. And mm. it was just it was a lot. And then a lot of people were just passing around me in, in circles. And even after my dad's passing, like my uncle passed um, a former colleague um, committed suicide in September. Same. Yeah. September as well. And so, so much has just happened, but that day, for a moment in time, I just said to myself, maybe, maybe I need to go over there. But I think what really stopped me or put me together after thinking about this for time and and for a few weeks was the only thing that I could really think of was my mother. Hmm. Because I realized the bond that we have, but I also know, and I asked myself, And I painted this picture and I said, I said, Ali, picture yourself in a casket. 
and all the people that you've impacted and all the people, your mother and and the people you've met in your life and people that look up to you and people that respect you as a person that that loves your laugh and just the joy that you bring. All looking over you in a casket, do you think that would be worth it? Do you think your dad would even want some shit like that? All the people that you've met and all the people that have came into your life. And this is me talking to myself literally and saying, picture yourself in a casket and everybody that you know and people you're close to standing over your casket. Do you really think that's the right decision? And I snapped out of it. And I was like, because I know my dad and my dad would look at me like in his country accent. What the hell wrong with you, girl? <laughs> so and that's literally him. <laughs> and I I knew that I, literally like him. I, I literally like sidebar, but like I've literally had to translate sometimes for my dad for Jeff because my dad would talk so fast. Jeff wouldn't know what the hell he's saying. Yeah. So yeah. but that was just sidebar. But like literally I. I was just like, no, I can't do that. And I I didn't, I never shared that. And it was just a moment where I was just like really unsure, unconfident. Am I still needed here? Did my dad finish everything he needed to do? He didn't deal with some of the challenges or the battles he had, but he lived his life. And that's how I looked at it. He lived his life and he lived it on his own terms as a human being, as a man. And yes, he wasn't the best father, but he loved me. And as adults and as we grew up, you know, he would say that a lot more. He would tell us he loved us. Um, and not only that, but talk about how beautiful his children are. When we at his funeral, we met so many people like literally there was a section for class of 79. All these people he grew up with. Oh, uh, really? Yeah. Like there was a section and in, in the church that huh. was for the class, his classmates that he graduated high school with and all these people. Oh, he talked about you guys all the time, how beautiful you are, how you grew up to be wonderful women. Um, he wasn't with your dad, you know, your dad wasn't with your mom, but he talked about his wife all the time and how much he still loved her and never met some of these people a day in our lives. And we're mm -hmm. just like, who are all these people? But it was a, it was a celebration. Of all the negative. I mean, that's a really good thing to hear. And I think that's, that's just, uh, can you just say that one more time in his voice? That tell what, what would he say to you if you were to, What's wrong with you, girl? 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 Um, yeah, that's down at girl. Girl? here. So, well, first of all, I'm, the fact that you were so honest about that, because that's not something I've heard from people who've dealt with this kind of loss, but it's very, uh, I, I would, uh, your honesty about it, I'm sure that people have had those thoughts, and I'm super happy that you did not go through with that. That's it's never the answer. Um but um, thank you for sharing that. That's not an easy thing to share. And thank you for taking all this time to tell us about you and your dad and kind of the, the road that you guys went on. And um, with this so fresh, <clears throat> excuse me, in your life, uh, for sharing your story with us. It's, 
it's been an amazing story. I've uh, I've been sitting here. Usually I'm like, better say something funny. Uh, but I've just been sitting. That's what my brain sounds like. Yeah. Um, but I've just been sitting back and just kind of listening, uh, kind of in awe of of your candor and 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 um, I appreciate you coming on very much. Of course. With that, Ali, thank you. Um, t- you were uh brought on here by our sponsor uh the cigarette fuck uh, the fuck cigarettes ladies and gentlemen wow yeah uh oddly <laughs> enough their their spokesperson looks just like joe camel oh. is that, is that right? <laughs> uh okay with that, oh, with that everybody pull out light up a fuck and uh, thanks so much for listening to Sad Times. Ali, thank you again for coming on and sharing your amazing story. Um, you're an incredible person. And, um, you know, my best to your family. Thank and you. And we'll see you guys, see you, listen to you, talk to you next time on Sad Times. And thanks, as always, for listening, everybody. Um, you can see find us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Sad Times KC. You can email us at Sad Times KC. Uh, at gmail.com and one of these days I'll promote the show so it'll be great (laughs) thanks Ali of course thanks Kevin all right bye everybody you've been listening to a fourth hand joint